Hi, this is Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael Seaver, an executive coach, leadership consultant, author and public speaker who focuses on unlocking human potential, helping you uncover your most authentic self and define your life's purpose. Raised on a farm in a small town in Michigan, Michael started working in the family business at the age of 12. When he got married and moved away to Arizona, it certainly helped him to broaden his horizons and develop plenty of business and people skills, but also set him up with a number of challenges and created a lot of stress. Eventually, when his marriage fell apart, Michael went through a state of despair and depression to the point that he was giving serious consideration as to why he was on this planet. However, a bizarre event involving his cat, Cleopatra, helped him to turn his whole life around, setting him onto his journey to understand potential and purpose. In our conversation, we cover such topics as how we can take our darkest moments and turn them into opportunities for growth, how being still and trusting in yourself will lead you to the answers you seek, and why stepping into nature can instantly reduce stress and anxiety. Ultimately, the secret to happiness and a life of joy is about becoming the person that you needed when you were younger. Before we jump into the interview, if not already done so, please have a listen of my TEDx talk. If you go to my website, businessenjoyment.com, a pop-up will appear giving you direct access. Alternatively, take a look at my LinkedIn profile and you'll find a link there in the featured section. This talk sets out my ethos that life and business is about so much more than just money and sets out how you can be successful and happy at the same time. So do check that out, but for now, sit back, relax, think about who you need to become, and most of all, enjoy. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I am uh, an executive coach. I'm a leadership consultant, uh, do an awful lot of public speaking, uh, some more virtual now during the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, I'm really in the business of unlocking human potential, right? So I help through executive coaching, right? Helping people uncover like their personal mission, their core values, finding ways to help them communicate really powerfully. How can they build a brand to build some sort of an influence? You know, when it comes to leadership consulting and training, it's very much about how can I help commun people communicate more effectively, build emotional intelligence, manage change. There's a lot of that going on in society, develop, you know, strategies around employee engagement, right? That really matters a lot to me. And when it comes to organizational change and the things with regards to culture, right, sometimes we have to deal with compensation models, sometimes we do with employee engagement and meeting methods, right, there's all these different things. But really what it comes down to, especially when speaking, is that I want people to understand that there are, like, in terms of like generational things, we're far more similar than we're being taught to believe. Yeah. Uh, and I really want people to stay positive through all the different changes and things that are occurring in society. And they're just really, really key things that we can do to build relationships, right? So for the last 10 years, serving as an executive coach, finding ways to do a lot of leadership consulting inside businesses, speaking on stage, uh, writing a lot, having online courses available on my website. You know, I really just want people to trust their intuition and find new ways to unlock their potential to walk into their most authentic self. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, that bit you say there about um, people being the same at the end of the day. <clears throat> and I, I don't know what your take on is, but my, my view on it is, that we, we, as you say, we're kind of all the same. The only thing is we, we might speak a different language. 
we, and sometimes we need to understand that person's language to speak their way and sometimes we, they need to understand our language and speak our way but but obviously in the literal language sense but also in the way we behave the way we whatever but it's just a case of translating from one to another to enable that communication yeah. properly i agree i agree and i think it's i read it somewhere that the phrase is meet people where they are and I think that there's a lot of power in that really simple, basic statement. So whether it's adjusting your communication preferences or style to meet someone where they are, if it's physically meeting them where they are, if it's understanding their current emotional context and being able to listen at a very, very deep level or ask the right questions to be able to pull out how it is that they're feeling, there's significant power in knowing ourselves deeply enough to adjust our style to someone around them to make them feel safe to be able to express themselves fully. Mm, absolutely yeah um and are you with most of what you're doing obviously you've got a range of things and online stuff but are you, are you mainly working with people one-to-one in that real stuff are you are you doing the sort of the the, the running with the teams and engaging the teams as well or what's your sort of preference yeah most of i'm an introvert naturally andrew so uh, kind of quiet and shy naturally so working one-to-one you know i've been leading teams for 25 years and coaching really specifically for the last 10 and i would say the vast majority of that time I've spent thousands of hours in the arena with people one-to-one, predominantly people who are, you know, director, vice president, C-suite level, because they're going through a really massive change. And oftentimes at that level, they just don't have someone to talk to or talk through those really big issues, right? It's a very insular role. And so most of my time, I think, is spent with individuals. Yes. Mm. I just pick on something before we get into into the the meat of the thing. There's something interesting there, which uh, does crop up quite a bit. And I, I resonate with, but people listening and, you know, you've, you've said you're a, you're a speaker, you get up there on stage and tell people, talk to people, you you're, you lead teams, um, but you're an introvert. And and that's often something that people can't quite grasp. That it's almost like, no, 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 that's the opposite of an introvert, isn't it? Is that an extrovert? Surely you're whatever it is. But it's actually very true. You know, there's a lot of, I'm an introvert, a lot of us, a lot of us are. But what's your take on that in terms of the being sheltered and yet being out there at the same time? Yeah. You? Yeah, and that's a wonderful way to look at it is that I'm certified to deliver the DISC assessment. So understanding the differences between introversion and extroversion or the opposite scale task orientation versus people orientation, it's really important to understand that about the self. And so, yes, I happen to be very strongly introverted, but I happen to also have learned behaviors that allow for me to exhibit extrovert tendencies in short bursts of time, but then I have to find time for myself at the end of the day or multiple times throughout the day. And I think that's the trick that we all need to be mindful of is that introverts gain energy by being reflective, by being reactive and by being alone. Extroverts gain energy by taking action or being with groups of people. And so it's not that we're predominantly introvert or extrovert. It's just that we manage our time contextually. So it's just being really mindful of that to say, if you're an introvert and you do like to lead teams, that's entirely possible. And you should absolutely explore that, but be mindful of the management of energy, you know, day to day today. And if you're an extrovert and you need to be doing introvert things, that's a okay, but just make sure that you also plot time throughout that day to take action or to spend time with people. So I want to make sure that people are aware of their style, but also that they can be adjusting their style momentarily. Yeah, and again, it's that thing about, and I think knowing knowing yourself is such an important thing in business, because and it gets back to what we were talking at the start about that communication, and communication starts with self. So if you can understand your own patterns and how you work, then you how you can, as you say, you can then meet people where they are, because you know where you are. If you don't know where you are, <laughs> um, whatever. So, um, 
I want to know your background, your story, your journey to, to, to get you here. And I know we've got some um, there's some fascinating bits in your story that you're, you're prepared to share. So how did it all kick off with you? Where, where have you come from? What's your starting experience into the business world? Yeah, it, it has been a, a really a, a unique path. And I, I think I look back on it uh, and I still trying to find clarity in it. So I was raised in a very small town in the state of Michigan in America, a town of 2,500 people, predominantly a farming community. And my family owns a, a landscaping, law maintenance, and snow plowing business. And I was, you know, being raised on a farm, but working inside the family business was a beautiful experience. So I started working full-time at age 12. I worked in the family business all the way until age 24. So there were blessings associated with learning the values of hard work, with learning the values of customer service, with learning the values of attention to detail. But inside of that, the yin and yang energy is, is that there was also very distinct feelings for me of emotional abandonment, uh, just because my family was so focused on work that they weren't always there uh, for me emotionally in the way that I desired to be. So oftentimes I felt at home in my family, emotionally abandoned, but at work, I felt like a robot inside the family business because my father and grandfather were very command and control in their leadership style. Yeah. So it felt very, very different and challenging. That's, that's so, very interesting because normally you would think, you know, the, the natural assumption is a family business. It's all everybody working together and all harmonious. And obviously there's going to be battles, but it's very interesting. You come up with that sort of abandonment side of things and I can see how, I guess the comic, the conversation at home was just about work possibly. And always. Yeah. And still to this day, you know, my sister and her husband work for my father still inside the business. And I don't think things have really adjusted or changed all that much. Mm. And for me, it was, there was a, a metaphorical connection between being raised on a farm where there are not a lot of other kids, my age around. And so if things didn't always go well at work, my father's kind of natural tendency was to be angry. And so he would spend an awful lot of time in his office, ignoring my sister or my mom or I. And so it became very, very easy for us to uh, spend time alone and being an introvert, right? It just compounded the feelings of abandonment and wonderment. So in the latter part of 2003, I actually got married. And so in December, so September got married, December, 2003, we decided to move from Michigan to the state of Arizona. And that was a very, very good move for me because I was able to start kind of expanding away from small town family business and that very insular mindset into working in the hospitality industry for about four and a half years. Where how, you, how, how, were they, how were they with you leaving the business? Was that my mother, you know, leaving the business, my mother was very supportive because she saw the constraints that were kind of placed on myself or my soul. Uh, it was a little harder for my father because, you know, he was under the impression and, and my grandfather too, uh, were under the impression that I would be next in line to take over the family business. And so for probably five or six months after I left, um, I didn't hear much from my dad. And I think he was just kind of integrating and trying to make sense of it. You know, thankfully, I had some other family members that were still working for him, and he was able to become quite wealthy for himself in that short period of time. So he worried a little bit less about me not being there because there were other family members helping him to produce the wealth. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being okay. But for me, moving to the state of Arizona, where there's incredible diversity, you know, in the small town I was raised in, it was 99.8% Caucasian. And it was a very, very small place. But then I go to work at the Four Seasons Resort in North Scottsdale, and there were 13 or 14 different countries represented in the employee base of like 500 employees. And all of a sudden now I'm interacting with celebrities because I was the front desk agent. And I'm interacting with these people all over the world. And it was beyond exciting for me. 
because I started to pick up other languages and I started to interact with these other people. But the thing that I take away most from that experience is how to read body language and tone of voice to anticipate someone's needs. Nice. So there were, of course, a lot of challenges because during that time frame, my wife and I were slowly separating without realizing it. Okay. And so, you know, as we're going through this process of learning a lot about ourselves and interacting with all these really, really wonderful people, again, the yin and the yang energy coming through where I'm developing and my ex-wife was developing, but then we were also really significantly challenged because the thing that brought us together in the small town was no longer true in the big town. So as we navigated the next four and a half, five years, it was August of 2008. So about five years after we moved to Arizona, uh, she told me that she was leaving me and she absolutely 100% did the right thing. And we are good friends now, right? Years and years and years later, because it was one of those things where she had an emotional intelligence and a self-awareness that I did not yet have. And she knew, <laughs> and she knew it was time to, to move on. And I did not, yeah. but the saving grace that I had. Sorry. So did you react badly at the time, not having the emotional intelligence that you have now? I remember crying for the entire weekend. Uh, and this kind of contributes to suppression of emotion, which I'll talk about in a second, where I, as an introvert, right, the, the natural tendency when we're feeling extra emotion is to dive down into fear and to become very avoidance of conflict. And that's how introverts deal with conflict. And so in that moment, I didn't push back. I didn't try to fight for it. I just honored what it was that she was feeling, but I was in an immense state of depression and sadness. So the saving grace of this entire situation was, is that as we were both moving out of our home, I was starting an MBA at the Thunderbird School of Global Management. And that ended up being my saving grace because it was one of those things, like I knew I was destined and meant for more, but I didn't have a path as to how that was going to occur. So going to school was the distraction that I needed short term to manage the emotions of the divorce, but also then to get more clarity about myself. Mm. So as a first year student, I was given a career coach and she gave me the disc and the career leader and the strengths finder. And she asked me a series of questions. And she said, all of these things point to you being tremendous at human resources, leadership development, or some sort of speaking or leader or capacity development in other people. And I was so down and depressed and nervous at those moments that I didn't believe her at all. Right. So I spent three, four or five months ignoring her advice, right. Just going to class, <laughs> doing all that. But she somehow or another turned me on to an internship at a healthcare system uh, in Phoenix. And that internship gave me just enough of a, of a belief that I could do it, that I began exploring it as a second year student. And this is where my coaching career started. So as a second year MBA student with students from 50 plus different countries, being Caucasian male, I was the minority in the student population. And that to me was wonderful. I couldn't have been more happy about that because I'm coaching these individuals from around the world uh, to help them with resumes, cover letters, you know, interviewing LinkedIn skills and tactics. And this is 2009. And what I realized, Andrew, is that I completely lost track of time. Mm. Right. And it was an interesting to me. And you talk an awful lot about, you know, success is this thing about being happy and laughing and enjoying the experiences of life. And I absolutely in those moments did that. And that was a sign for me is that for the first time in my life at age 29, I was starting to experience happiness and enjoyment in my life's experiences deeply. And it, it took 29 years to kind of get to that, but I'm so thankful that it happened. So some people never get there. I mean, that's true. <laughs> that is so true. 
But I'm so thankful that I, I had that support from that coach to guide me down this path because, you know, it's been just a little over 10 years now since that, that has occurred. Mm-hmm. And it has been such a beautiful transformation of my life and transformation of my soul in that context. So I finished the degree and in 2010, and I immediately went to work for the organization that had hired me as an intern the summer before. So I was the director of talent sourcing at a large healthcare system. And I wasn't doing a whole lot of coaching and I should have been paying attention to that as I was looking for jobs, but I was just more interested in getting a good job with a reputable company. And so I managed the career transition program, the employer referral program, you know, the onboarding process, new employer orientation for 27,000 employees across the entire company, right? That was my responsibility. But as the weight of that carried for the next probably 20 months, I realized that, that that was not my path. I wanted to get back to coaching, right? So as an introvert, it was very hard to constantly be on stage six days a week for this business. And so I picked up some really good skills. I made good money, all of that stuff. And I'll never forget the day where I was driving into work one day and there was a a standstill on the freeway and we couldn't go any further. And I looked around me and I just started bawling uncontrollably, right? Because I realized that the happiness and the laughing and the joy had been taken away from me again. Mm. And, it, and that was February 2011. And I realized that I needed to make that jump into entrepreneurship some way, but I didn't know exactly how. And so I promised myself that at some point in the latter part of 2011, that I was going to launch my coaching practice. And I look back at that moment in October 2011 of saying, yes, I'm going to stop working full time, making six figures inside this business to start working in my own practice because I didn't have a client base and I didn't have any type of Uh, like process or website or anything to like really launch. I just started. And the iterations that have occurred since October, 2011 have been incredibly profound, right? So I had like this minimally viable product that I just kept iterating on a lot to get to where I am today. So the lessons that we learn from saying, okay, I think this is the right path. There's a lot of things to be learned inside that but I realized the thing that was missing was that joy, that happiness, that engagement, that enjoyment that wasn't happening day to day to day. And I thought that by starting my own business, I could do that. Right. And so thankfully, as I rolled into 2012, I realized very quickly that there were skills that I needed. So I started teaching classes as an adjunct faculty member at a local university. So as I'm building my business and trying to find ways to get coaching clients, I was obviously very short on cash. So I needed to find a way to make money. So teaching classes was a way for me to build up my public speaking skills, but also then to be able to find ways uh, to make a little bit of cash to make things go. But again, business was slow to to start because I didn't have some of those formal things in place. And then in the latter part of 2012, I was able to get a job at Arizona State University as a career coach to executive MBA students. And so the iteration started for about two and a half, three years there where my business was still growing and building nights and weekends, but I had to work full-time during the day to be able to test my coaching ideas and practices on those students. Mm. And so thankfully it worked because on January 1st, 2015, you know, I was able to go off and start my business full time. So in the three years of teaching classes or working as a career coach at the school and building my business nights and weekends, I was able to iterate and learn an awful lot and then launch fully January 1st, 2015. And so, you know, think about 2015 until now, 2022, I started out as a resume writer, and then I became certified to deliver the DISC assessment. So I was doing communications trainings and coaching, and I came up with a process to design personal brands, doing personal branding coaching. 
and then uh, getting a little bit more into executive coaching and how do we open up lines of communication and develop strategy. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I've been focused in on organizational change consulting. And so working on a couple of bigger projects, you know, still coaching, still doing training, still speaking publicly, but working a little bit more on organizational strategy change. What does that look like? Uh, and so in the beginning of 2021, so about a year ago, published a book called I Know, which I can tell you more about um, in a second. But I just think that when we look at the change and the pace of change in society, I think all of us can be thinking about it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to learn experientially, as long as there's a level of constant growth and iteration in that process. Mm, yes. Right. Because without the growth, we get stuck in it and start getting to blame the victim and, and beating ourselves up if we're not careful. Whereas every error, mistake, problem, challenge is, is, is just is an opportunity to grow, move forward. And then we can, we can then attach positive things to those negative concepts. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And in, in your book, you know, more than just money, you talk about how it's easy for us to focus on the wrong problem mm. or to be like really overly resilient or tolerating of things around us, which I think we all do in some way. Or you said you know, something in the text about, you know, it's, it's easy for us to wait for change to occur. Uh, and I look at those things and I say, okay, it is very easy, especially with the people that I've coached that they do default to that. And I realized that in order for me to be a tremendous coach, I needed to be four, five, six steps ahead of my client or have processes and resources that were four, five, six steps ahead of what he or she was trying to do. And so I realized that in order for me to not focus on the wrong problem or to not be too tolerating, I needed to be constantly iterating, mm. right? And that was really important. So the, the, all of the, you know, kind of things from my childhood, from the divorce, from the things not working in corporate America for me really came to a head in July, August of 2018, right? So I'm still coaching. I'm still doing all these things, but I decided to leave a six-year romantic relationship that I was having. And that, that and the combination of a couple other things, like we sent her daughter at the time uh, to college. So I was single for the first time in a very long time. My stepdaughter was off to college. And so I was kind of lonely, right? Inside of that. And then I started to do a couple of things in my business with uh, high dollar value workshops and online courses. And at the latter part of 2018, the early part of 2019, those things were not working. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making money. I wasn't able to bring in the clients. And I had already been coaching. I'd been leading teams for a long time. But for some reason, the universe's support for that wasn't quite right. right? There's a misalignment there in some way. So I got to the point in March of 2019 where I realized that something needed to adjust or change. So I stopped the online courses development and I stopped the development of the workshops. And that threw me into a tailspin for a couple of months. So in May of 2019, I very significantly contemplated suicide, right? And what was coming up for me was all of these things from my childhood of the fears of abandonment and the not being able to be my authentic self were coming to a head because I was effectively abandoned right? By my ex-girlfriend, even though she didn't do anything wrong, right? But then I was abandoned by my stepdaughter who went to college. Then I was abandoned, you know, by all these possible clients who, you know, didn't either pay for the online course or didn't attend the workshop. And it all came to a head. Yes. So I'm lying, I'm lying on the bedroom floor, May of 2019, you know, just uh, in this place of incredible despair, sadness, depression, not knowing the way out. And, you know, at those moments that you start to think about, what's the point of me even being on earth anymore? And I really started to think about that for hours that afternoon. 
and at some point when I got to the point of actually really thinking about, okay, well, what does this look like? Well, why do I need to be here? Or how would I end my life? What are those things? At that moment, and I don't understand this yet, my cat Cleopatra came over to me while I was lying on the floor and she was lying on my chest purring with a resonance I don't ever remember coming from her because she is not an affectionate cat, right? And she's now 10 and a half years old as we're recording this. And, but she just has never been an independent cat. She was found in Minot, North Dakota in the middle of winter, a complete stray. And so she's been very independent uh, her entire life. And so when she came over and she lied on my chest and she was purring, it was a very surreal thing because about 10 seconds into the purring, this voice came into my head and said, you have to stay. Your calling is far bigger than you can possibly imagine. And, and I, to this day, Andrew, I still don't understand that, but I am trusting that the universe was right. So I chose to stay. And then I spent the summer of 2019, all the way until about August, September, just spending a lot of time in nature, spending a lot of time reflecting, spending a lot of time talking to therapists, coaches, and healers to try to figure out what got me to that point. What did I do to contribute to my own troubles, if you will, mm. right? And really going within because I, I'm a very, uh, I'm a person who believes very deeply in individual responsibility and that we shouldn't be blaming other people for our life's circumstances and situations, right? I wanted to take individual responsibility. So instead of blaming my ex-wife or my ex-girlfriend or my daughter or for those clients that, you know, weren't coming to the events, I said, how did I contribute to this? And the language is very important there, isn't it? How did I contribute? Because it's, as we move through life, it's a symbiotic relationship. So we are a certain way and the rest of the world fits around us. And then we end up meeting more people that fits in that because we've shaped like that. And, and so it's, we have to shift first in order for the universe to change around us and meet different people and meet different experiences. But it's what you say there about contributing. So it's not blaming others, but as we touched earlier on, it's not blaming ourselves either so yes i am in this position because i was the sort of person that would be that way but that's not a blame thing and and slap wrist and feel bad about it it's okay brilliant i can do something about that now <laughs> yeah oh exactly and you talk about it inside your book which i loved and it says you talk about it i think it was chapter nine you're like hey when you have these circumstances and these situations pop up you can change the situation you can change the perspective or you can change your reaction and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I was doing all three somewhat simultaneously and trying to get to that point of understanding, okay, there are just certain ways that we learn experientially on earth that are enormously difficult. And even though they seem dark and negative and hard, there is significant value in the learning. So let's remove the negative emotion and let's focus on the positive lessons learned that are coming out of this objective experience. So changing the situation for me by staying on earth and stopping some of those high dollar value in, in investments, if you will, or changing my perspective by talking to coaches and talking to healers and talking to therapists to say, how did I contribute to this process? And third, what you talked about is how do you change your reaction? So instead of me becoming avoidant or insular or not talking to anybody, I changed my reaction to the negativity by constantly talking to people or telling my story in a way that I hadn't before. And that allowed for me to get to a clarity in August to September of 2019 that later led to writing of the book. Cause I started writing, I know, in, in May of 2020. 
And so it's just this iterative process, right? We, we have all of these challenges that exist in our childhood. At some point, they come to a head. For me, it was in 2018, 2019. And then we go through this process of kind of hitting rock bottom and doing the reflection. And just like Joseph Campbell talks about in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, you start to climb out of it. And you start to get to that point of, of clarity and resilience and courage. And it took a while, right? Even still to this day, I'm 41 years of age and I'm still climbing. I'm still learning every day. Absolutely. And so it's, it's fascinating to think about that. So in the book, I know when I started writing in, in May, I made sure that the introduction to the text was a story of how Cleopatra effectively saved my life. Because I know that I'm not the only person on earth who has had a sadness or a depressive thought or wondered about the value of their life on earth right now. And sometimes, you know, I think that's a topic of conversation, which people are scared to have often. And why should I be on, you know, why should I live? <laughs> and, and I've worked with people with, with extreme anxiety and they've, they've been questioning that sort of thing. And in some places it is a very dark kind of actually contemplating where it might go, but then they'll have a, 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 a let's call it a positive conversation around it, but everyone else is scared because they think, Oh, well, what are you going to do? But I'm always reminded with um, uh, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, and that's one of the questions he would flip around was, you know, if someone's in that dark mode and, and considering suicide, I said, well, why haven't you? Yeah. Why haven't you done it? That's a beautiful question. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And it's such a, I love that book too. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it, you know, at the very end of that book, right. He talks about how his meaning in life was to help others find meaning in theirs. And I really do believe that each human that comes to earth does have a defined and specific purpose. And Ron and Mary Holnick, they wrote a book called loyalty to your soul. And they really do believe uh, that each person has what's called an earth school curriculum. So you come to earth, it's actually a school. So for the 100 years that you're here, you're supposed to learn something specific. Now in a popular you know, culture today, it's like, what's your purpose? What's your mission? What's your why? But it's really the same thing, right? Frankel was talking about finding meaning. The whole next we're talking about, you know, what is that thing that is your earth school curriculum? You know, folks like you and I, Andrew, we can get to that place of saying for you specifically, you say, well, what's this wider understanding of yourself? Not better, but what's your wider understanding of yourself, right? Which is brilliant because we don't necessarily need to be better because that, as you say in your book, it denotes saying that there was some previous version of us that was bad. And, and that's not true, right? We're here to be expansive and expressive and to learn experientially. So I think that we're moving into this place in human history where you can hit rock bottom. And if you have that underlying motivation, that underlying why, then any event, any circumstance, any how is manageable at that point. Yeah, exactly. And it's easy to talk about it, but it's, 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 it's usually, and again, I'll touch the book, but it's usually through that hitting that dark point that the clarity comes and some people need to hit that in order to sort of and like you know going to that question of why what who am i the introspection understanding exactly who you are um because otherwise the, the, you know there needs to be something that makes you stop and think that question um now if you're lucky you can find someone that can ask you that question without you even hit that point <laughs> yep. Yep. so true um, but you've still got to hear it and yeah. take the action um and and the, the problem is, is if people don't care, get past that point, obviously. It's, um, yeah. Um, but it is. But I, I'm I'm 
my view on purpose is and is because I, I i'm interested in that book that uh, you alluded to with the the hundred year sort of plan kind of thing the recipe whatever i've been intrigued to see what it is but you know we, we've all got our own view on it i'm 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 not so fatalistic, deterministic. I don't think we have things mapped out for us. Uh, I think we we have to uncover and discover. But um, my general view is that and when it comes to purpose and finding that difference we want to make in the world, what we're actually trying to do, it seems to be in most cases, is we're essentially trying to heal a version of ourselves projected in the outside world. So for you, the, all those issues of abandonment and challenge you've had in the past, now you're putting that out and you're helping the um, to create organizations and business and communities that work together in a nice lovely fam family friendly <laughs> non-abandonment way and reflecting yeah. all of your pain bringing it around in a positive way and putting it out to the universe yeah you you nailed it you nailed it andrew and i heard this phrase years and years ago and the phrase is be the person you needed when you were younger yes and i what you just described is is that i think in some context and so what I've come to understand, and sometimes my process, I refer to it as the pain to purpose journey. Mm. And so call it what you wish, but really what it comes down to is that from birth until about age 27, 28, all of us go through a set of challenges and they're specific and unique to us. And at age 28, 29, 30, astrologists refer to it as a Saturn return, but really what it is, is it's time energetically for each person to look at the previous phase of their life and say, okay, what was the recurring theme across those challenges? And for me, it just happened to be abandonment or feeling like a robot inside the family's business. So as Pam, the coach at Thunderbird was helping me, she helped me to feel accepted, heard, and understood. And she gave me a process that helped me become authentic, right? The opposite of a robot. And so it's not a surprise or a secret that I have now spent since, you know, 2008, 2009, spent a very, a lot of time helping others discover their most authentic self by me listening actively for thousands and thousands of hours to help them feel heard and understood. Mm. So challenge, how did you overcome the challenge? How can you now help others overcome that exact same challenge for themselves? And if you play in that cycle, to your point, Andrew, the amount of meaning that comes into your life is astronomical, mm. right? You heal so quickly. Yeah, and and I think the, the the key thing from that is that we, when we look at our uh, life, is that those earlier stages are there in order for us to discover that, and so there's always pressure on us at all stages to try and find the meaning and try and find the purpose and that kind of stuff. But we've also got to remember, well, maybe we're still discovering it. Maybe we're still learning who we are in order to sort of put that out there. So maybe I don't need to know the 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 the, the true purpose right now, because I've still got to yet find that challenge that's going to test me. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And, and so we, we run into these situations and these events and, you know, my mission at its core is how do I unlock human potential? Mm. And so if I'm in the business of unlocking human potential, my first three core values are authenticity, growth, and spirituality. Now I have the why of my life pretty solidified. And as I've already described, it's been lots of iterations of how I coach from writing books to writing blogs, to, you know, podcasts, to, you know, being, being on stage, any number of ways, right? The how constantly evolves. But what I realized was, is that when I really took the time in the last year or so to reflect back on my life, 
the thing that I was really deeply interested in was, you know, Sigmund Freud's work or Carl Jung's work, or more recently, Jordan Peterson out of Canada, and really diving down into or even Adam Grant out of the University of Pennsylvania. And I really appreciated the depth at which these individuals thought, right, they were very ahead of their time, if you will, uh, around how they navigated psychology and the human experience. And so it has taken me, you know, 25 years of leadership and coaching to finally get to the point of realizing at age 41 that I would like to be like them, right? And so I've gone through all these iterations of who I am already, but I am still only a fraction of the way through my iterations, mm-hmm. right? So the mission of unlocking human potential will remain the same, but in the next version of Michael, he might not be on stage. He might be doing a lot of research and writing books or writing some other means. And that will be how I unlock potential. And I think for each of us to just be mindful of that is that how you live your mission is less relevant than the fact that you're spending a very large percentage of your day living your mission. Yeah. That's the power. Yeah. And, you know, because of that iterative nature, there isn't a point where the mission's complete because it's an infinite universe. We're never complete. The job's never done. But that takes pressure off of having to complete the job. So as long as you move it forward and you keep evolving and iterating and changing and shifting and fine-tuning and improving or whatever it might be, going broader, then you're constantly living in that space of enjoyment. That's a great way to say it. I love it. And I think that's what we want more people to feel, Andrew, is that at the point of self-discovery, you feel much, I think, much more expansive because over the next, you know, if you get to this point of saying, here's my mission or here are my core values, and then over the next few weeks, you can do a number of activities and exercises that actually get you the point of seeing, I can brainstorm, there's probably a thousand different ways that I can live this. Yes. And right. And so when you spend a disproportionate amount of your time living your mission, living your core values, living the things that motivate you day to day to day, that's really deep positive experiential learning, right? That's motivation, that's enjoyment. And so there's even value, I think, and through some of those negative circumstances of even being able to see them as positive as well, right? There's a learning that exists inside them. And so even when you think about Maslow's hierarchy, even the the four stages that you talk about in your model, it's like, as you start to get to the top, self-actualization or finding your inner purpose, like you said, it was akin to the killer whale or the orca, right? You're kind of at this place of saying how something occurs is less relevant than the fact that there's this constant focus on self-learning, self-awareness, and self-discovery. And so there's, a, there's deep enjoyment, I think, in the self-discovery. Absolutely, but, but always attached to helping somebody else through the process, mm-hmm. but someone that means something to you. <laughs> yeah, oh, big time. You know, this, as, we, as we said, is a version of yourself out there kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like there's a, there's a mirror effect, I think, that exists between the people that we, we come across, right? Andrew, your, my messages are, are very quite similar. Now, the language that we utilize to describe it or the respective audiences that we serve might be a little bit different, but at our core, we really are saying, how can you find self-actualization for yourself? And then how do you then contribute to the self-actualization of others? Mm. It, that's, that's enjoyment, right? That's significant enjoyment. But people in our society, they've been so suppressed via the media or what's referred to as generational curses, right? All these things that have been passed on to them from previous generations. It's hard to shed those belief patterns and structures and narratives and just to say, how is it that I really genuinely want to show up for myself and others? That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And just it jumped into my head when you were talking there about the, you know, there was a resonance between knowing who you are and the people you work with and and their reflection of you. And and so it increases over time and hits a level of frequency and resonance that is never been felt or seen before because you've not experienced it before. And all I'm thinking about is Cleopatra sat on your chest, hitting a level of frequency and resonance you've never felt or (laughs) seen before. So true. You off sort of thing. So. Yeah, it's it, that's the thing is that it, there's a, a a scientist passed away years and years ago, W. O. Schumann, and he came up with something on Earth called the Schumann resonance. And so Earth effectively has a heartbeat. So Earth is constantly vibrating at seven point eight three hertz, and it just so happens that through other medical journals, I've discovered that most of the organs inside the human body resonate at about eight hertz. So almost effectively the same as Earth but you can dip below that or you can go higher, right? So if you're stressed, anxious, nervous, your energy is going to be above eight Hertz. And so the best thing that you can possibly do, if you're feeling anxious, stressed, nervous inside of a, you know, some sort of house or corporate setting or building is to go outside and just ground yourself in nature, right? Your body will literally take the energy out of, out of your body and put it back into the ground. That's really, really helpful. But the other point I want to make is that on earth, there's something called the electromagnetic spectrum, but the human eye can only see 0.0035% of that entire spectrum. So the way that we're connected to the people or the way that Cleopatra could pick up my despair or then pick up my energy through her purr, right? We can't see that, right? It's there. It exists. It's real, right? You can look this up on all major like NASA websites and all this and that, like it's there. Procession of the equinoxes, call it whatever you like but it's there. And so for some reason, she sensed that my energy was dipping, my resonance was dipping, and she found a way through her own resonance to pick it up. Mm -hmm. And so there's always ways to pick those things up, right? So if you're feeling sad or angry or depressed or whatever, that's a sign that your energy is off. It's time to go balance it somewhere. So I just want everybody listening to just be really mindful that you can't see 99.99% of what's actually happening in front of your face, right? Because the electromagnetic spectrum is that big but it's in your best interest to tap into those things that seem to be happening repeatedly, right? So what is the thing that you can see about the the friends that you're around or the clients that you serve or the people that are in your community? Because I think it was Sagal Barsaid at the University of Pennsylvania. She found that emotions are contagious, right? And so if you are constantly around people that vibrate at a certain level or exhibit a specific character trait, you are going to then pick up on that subconsciously and not know it. So you have to be really intentional about breaking yourself out of a mold or a group or a place if that's the thing that is going to help you elevate to your life's next level. Mm. Just there's a, something I run with a lot of people I work with, but there's some um, research done and four minutes is a key moment in terms of energy contagion. And uh, I'm trying to make the book it is, but it's about it's, it's about happiness. The book I can't remember what it's called now, but mm. how to be happy or something like that. Anyway, studies done, and uh, you know how you sort of end of a long day, you get home, you're tired, and then you you're ratty with everybody when you get home and all this sort of stuff. It's because they're picking up on your energy. And if you go into the house and say, right, I'm going to be my best self, best husband, best dad, best whatever it is you are, wife, mother, sister, you know, I'm going to be the best version of myself for just four minutes. That's all I'm going to do it for. I'm just going to be able to do it for four minutes. That will be enough for other people to pick up on that energy, reflect it back. And then you start getting into the virtuous circle of a, a happy household. I love that. I haven't, I haven't heard it before. I think that's great. 
Um, so it's, it's and because it, you when you think I've got to be the effort of being you know good all the time can be quite draining you know as you say you've got to steal yourself and do stuff within 10 but it only needs to be four minutes that's all you need to commit to yeah i think people can do four minutes and i and that's the thing is that we are conditioned to believe certain things right so um, dr bruce lipton talks about this in his work where from birth until age six all persons right are in what's called the theta brainwave state so we're basically a sponge for everything that's happening around us and when that happens, right, everything that happens in our community, the things that our parents are saying are doing, their habits, routines, and rituals, they all kind of create the operating system by which our later conscious mind is going to function. Mm. So from birth until age six, you're just absorbing everything in the environments around you, but you don't really consciously have the ability to make choices and decisions yet. But after age six and from age seven and on, your brain moves into the beta brainwave state, which is a much more conscious brain. So after age seven, your conscious mind, which processes about 2000 bits of information per second, is pulling from your unconscious, right? Everything you learn from birth to age six, which processes 400 billion bits of information per second, right? Very, very different. And so you are from age seven until the time that you pass away, you are repeating the things that you saw from birth until age six. You don't realize that, but you're unknowingly, unconsciously repeating those. And so your work on earth this time around is to say, what is it that is Andrew, Michael, or yours actual purpose? And how is it that from birth until age six, you were acculturated or socialized to believe something different, right? That is not in alignment with your purpose or your mission. And so when you start to see life that way, now you start to see life as a set of experiential learning opportunities to say, my mom or dad or my community taught me this when I was young, but that doesn't really agree with my mission or my core values. How can I shed that narrative? Mm. How can I walk into this better version of myself, right? Or as you talk about in your book, the wider understanding of yourself, right? It's not just this little confined thing that your parents taught you to be. So there's so many ways that we go about discovering our mission and then taking the time throughout life to try to discover it at a deeper or more wider sense. And like, you know, putting it back, connecting it to what you said earlier on, that when, when we live a life just following the program that's been instilled in us in the first five, six years, uh, we think that's the only way. And going back to the point about the electromagnetic spectrum that you're only seeing a small percentage of what's actually out there, that's the same thing. So it's very hard to challenge because we think that's our entire world. Everything we've known, everything we thought, everything we believed, and that's all we know. Like you in your little small town and village with only 2,500 people. And it's only when you step out of that and start seeing other things and move to Arizona <laughs> that you go, yep. oh, hang on, yep. Yep. there's more. <laughs> yep. uh, so much more. And that's one of the great things about having moved to Arizona and then starting the master's degree at Thunderbird was that I was able to interact with students from 50 plus different countries. But then in January of 2009, I traveled to China and I was so enamored with the culture, I came back and spent six months learning Mandarin Chinese, wow. right? And so I, I haven't used it much since, but it was still the experience of learning and thinking in another language or dreaming in another language that really did shape who I am today. And so each of us can be very cognizant and aware of what it is that's happening around us and does that align with where it is we desire to go. Yeah. And so the person that Michael was back, you know, pre-2003 a very, very small uh, insular version of myself. And then I've been slowly, slowly expanding. So about three months ago, my partner, Tiffany and I, we moved to Cary, North Carolina. 
And we did that really intentionally because the energy inside Arizona and Phoenix specifically, I was there for 18 years and it's a very, uh, it's a very business centric. It's a very chaotic energy. And so people are constantly going, constantly doing things, but they're not spending as much time on themselves and stillness. And I recognized that a little bit later in my journey. And I said, I need to go to a place where there's still significant diversity, people who are not like me, but there is a slower pace of life where the energy isn't as chaotic. And that's the great thing about where we're at now is that we're between Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill, which is the University of North Carolina, Duke University and North Carolina State University and something called the Research Triangle Park, which is where many of the world's largest businesses have offices. So we're in this place where it's a, it's a smaller place, about 1.5 million people, but the amount of diversity, thought leadership, learning, people interacting with one another is astronomically higher than any other place I've been. And so that's a really important thing for me to recognize and notice is to say, maybe I've done all that I could do in the state of Arizona, and my energy isn't lining up with this energy anymore. I need to go find a different, wider tribe of people that better align with what I'm trying to become. Mm, absolutely. And as you say, more into that kind of philosophical book writing, possibly, we'll see, obviously see where it goes, but um, not attached to it, but um, that seems um, to be your calling. Um, just on that note, because we, we touched on your book briefly, but not, not, um, not too much into it. So um, uh, what's actually you, your book about and how did it come around? I mean, it's called I Know, and you talked about how the fact that your story is sort of involved there at the beginning as we understand you, but what's the um, what's it about and how did it form? Yeah, I was enormously reluctant to write it, right? Because um, introverts are fearful of criticism of their work uh, or criticism, or I would say like loss of loss, long-term security. Right? So any rejection and abandonment, hello. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right, totally. And And that was the thing is that it, I was told for years from clients, from people in the community, people who had heard me speak on stage, you need to tell your story or your client's stories. And I was very reluctant to do it. And then uh, in a, an interesting twist of fate, a week after I was contemplating suicide, I had already scheduled time to go see a psychic. And it wasn't something I had done a lot before, but I was really interested in it to try to bring any type of awareness to what, why I was experiencing what I was experiencing. And for 90 minutes, we had a really, really in, good in-depth discussion. And we didn't talk anything about my writing prowess or, or interests. And as I was walking out the door, I'll never forget it. She put her right hand on my left shoulder blade. And she said, your book needs to be done by September 30th. And I, I was flabbergasted, right? Because it had come to me through all of these different ways from friends, colleagues, people, you need to do this, you need to write this. And that seemed to me to be like the universe's message, like, it's, it's time to get started guy, right? Really. And so a year and a half later, October 1st, the book was done. So it, it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know, I had to work into it, but that was kind of the final uh, sign for me. So the way that I did it was I hired a writing coach, right? Because of the, the fear that I had around, could I do this or could I do it well? So having the writing coach be with me through the journey was really helpful. So the book is called, I know, and it's not that Andrew or Michael know, it's that each individual that reads the text has the answers inside him or herself, mm. right? And so I want each person reading it to say, I know the answer to this really difficult problem or challenge, right? So that's one of the core themes that you see throughout the entire text is that the answers are already inside you. You just need to be still to discover them. That's it. 
So although Michael and Andrew have processes and systems and resources and connections that can start the process or be a part of that for you, you have to trust yourself, right? It really is that. So the book is designed as like three sections uh, after the William Bridges model of transition. So the first section is how do you end and let go of the previous version of yourself? How do you process the loss? How do you overcome fear? How do you do the emotional release associated with what, what you've been taught before? And the third three chapters, I'm sorry, the second three chapters are about basically like in an emotional neutral zone for experimentation. So how do you define your personal brand? How do you build up your emotional intelligence? And how do you be okay with living this new identity for yourself? Okay, that's really, really key. Mm -hmm. And then the third three sections are, how do you take that identity to the marketplace, right? How do you move out into those new beginnings? How do you then use that new identity to design new organizational cultures? And then last and probably most important is, is that now that you've become this coach or very self-aware person, how do you now teach others to coach too, yeah. right? So it's kind of the journey. And the way that we designed it was is that each chapter begins with a story either from my life or from a client's life. So you get good story at the beginning, and then you get psychological research from, I think, 75 different sources around the world to say, okay, this is what this, this is where this comes from. This is what this means. And then I give a five-step process in every chapter that if you need to overcome fear, or if you need to discover your brand, or if you need to figure out how do you market yourself differently, here's five steps you can take tactically right now. And then we close every chapter with another story just to support the, the process and how it kind of works. So when I really think about the book and how it's designed, you know, it's, it's ebook, it's print on demand, it's, it's audiobook. I've got it available through most major retailers in each of those ways. But what I really wanted people to be aware of was if you're feeling disengaged, if you're feeling unhappy, if you don't feel appreciated, or if you feel like you're not living up to your potential and you, or you don't have some sort of work-life integration or balance, this book or these processes can help you get to that point of authenticity, right? You can discover your life's mission, uh, the happiness and the joy, you know, that you've been talking about, right? It's there. You can discover it by going through all of these processes, right? You're going to learn what is your communication style. You're going to learn your motivators. You're going to learn your core values, you're going to learn your strengths. You're going to learn what makes you different in the marketplace. And what I really want people to walk away with is clarity about what to say yes or no to. Right. And how do they go through that iteration? Right. Especially as they're confronted with really tough choices. So it really is my story and some client stories, but really what it is, is awakening the reader or listener to go from that place of disengagement to by the end of the text or the listening that they're at that place of enjoyment. I mean, really, and that's what I want people to experience. And so Hopefully, right, for those folks who have read it so far that they've gotten to that point of clarity for themselves because there's so much shifting and changing on earth that I think we're now at that point that knowing and trusting our own intuition is the way of the future. Beautiful. No, that sounds absolutely uh, fantastic. And um, I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to have to read that now. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds very, because, you know, stories are powerful um we, we can learn so much through story we engage with them we are we are a nation of storytellers it's how all me all methods and messages were communicated originally so th th it's a very important way so we need that but then also those practical steps uh of do this do that we also sometimes just need to be sort of the answer with that but sometimes we just need to be told what to do <laughs> <laughs> it's going to require work i'm guessing it's not something you just sort of idly flip through you've actually got to commit 
to get the real changer. Like. Yeah. And I think maybe you've experienced this too, Andrew, is that I, I've spent time in my life uh, serving people who actually didn't want to be served. And, and, and I realized that a couple of years ago, and that was a really big learning for me is that certain people on earth just are not ready for your message yet. And you shouldn't always be in the service of them, wait for them to have the learning, to have the experience in their life, to then be prepared for what it is that you have to say. And so that's a really important thing is that there are going to be lots and lots of people who do read the book. And then of course, there's going to be a subset that are going to look at it and say, nah, this isn't for me but it's because their soul is X number of years away from having the experience that would them make this book ready. Or maybe it's in their next life. I don't know. Maybe never in this life. I'm not sure. But I just really want people who are ready for that transformation for themselves, who are really bought in and motivated to do it. I want them to gain access to a book like this. It doesn't have to be mine, but I just want them to gain access to that transformation for themselves because a rising tide lifts all boats. So if the more people that are awakening, whether through Andrew's message or Michael's message, I just want people to awaken. Yeah. And this how, is, how this is exactly it. You know, when, you know, we're talking, we, we, as you said earlier on, we have a similar message. We have maybe different audiences and that kind of stuff, but neither of us care about what method you use to get where you want to go. Not <laughs> we just we want you to get there with me, yep. with you, with someone else. We don't mind. Get to go there. <laughs> yep. There's so much truth in that. And I think that that's one of the most important things is that uh, traditional Western societies have been designed, uh, I mentioned it earlier about my, my dad and my grandpa, uh, being command and control, right? So you think about Jack Welch and GE or even Steve Jobs, you know, these, these gentlemen, although they were really financially successful, uh, they were known to be jerks, right? They were known to not be good human beings, empathetic, emotionally intelligent human beings. And I'm glad that that methodology is slowly exiting society and you know, we still have Jeff Bezos and there's some others that are kind of along that same line, but I think we're moving away from those individuals and moving into what I refer to as aligning and empowering the workforce. So no longer command and control, we're moving towards aligning and empowering. So if we are aligning ourselves with the highest and best version of ourselves or with colleagues or communities that really genuinely desire to be a part of, like you call your groups breathing spaces, right? So when we are aligning with breathing spaces and the people in them, that's great. So now the breathing space or other circles like that, they create the environment for us to feel empowered to raise our own vibration, to trust our own intuition, to walk into this better version of ourselves. So under command and control leadership, we couldn't do that. But as we move into 2022 and later, we're going to be doing more aligning and more empowering and people trusting their own intuition. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where the message comes from, Andrew, Michael, or other, it, what it matters is, is that as a society, we all are constantly raising our own vibration by taking individual responsibility because others will then pick up on that, that energy, right? That emotion, they'll then feel safe to do the same. And that's the key, right? Is that once we lead by example and start to show other people that it's possible, we give them that little bit of hope. All of a sudden now society takes off in a very different and better way. And as you say, emotions contagious. So they, <laughs> and that's how yep. it works. Yeah. Uh, we could talk all day because <laughs> <laughs> it's you know there's yeah, it's always i say it's always interesting when we've got 
people with similar views. Sometimes it's nice to have someone who's got a completely opposite view because you can really challenge and, and yeah. get, it's that broadening thing. So I um, always advocate challenge and not a, a hide from it. Um, but um, but it is always good when you have somebody with a similar message. But again, as you say, with different different ways of approaching, coming from different directions, different learnings that got there. Um, but it's it's been absolutely um, beautiful to uh, listen to you, Michael. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, question I have to ask you, we've, we've heard a lot of it, we can probably guess some of it, but I want you to bring it together in a way that uh, feels concise and right for you. Um, Michael, what makes you a bit stingle? I think we could talk about this for a very long time, Andrew. Uh, it, you know, it could be rising tide lifts all boats, it could be meeting people where they are, it could be people unlocking their own potential. But I just, when I really step back and I really think about it, what I really want people to really leave with is, is that the more people that are being the person they needed when they were younger, the more that I am going to feel better, good, great about society, right? Each of us is going to have a series of tests of kind of like initiation to advance to our next level, right? We're all going to be given these opportunities to soar above kind of the mundane levels of life. We're all going to have opportunities to conquer the fear. We're all going to have opportunities to see kind of the beauty that exists in the negative shadow events and the positive kind of light filled events. I just think that by being the person you needed when you were younger, you can truly follow the, the joy that your heart desires, but it also gives you that opportunity to just deeply be happy to laugh and to enjoy the experience of life. Spot on. Thank you. Um, Michael, if people need to uh, track you down, find out more about you, see what's going on, where should they go? What should they look for? Uh, so, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Google, Apple, look for I Know by Michael S. Siever. Uh, that'll be a great place. It's available 40,000 retailers around the world. Uh, but michaelssiever.com is the website. My middle name is Scott. So that's why there's a second S there in the center. And it's kind of a repository of information to help that person move from a place of disengagement to move to that, that point of clarity. So michaelssiever.com. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on, Michael. I knew it'd be good. They're all, all all the conversations are good. I always get good people. <laughs> but, uh, I, I knew that uh, I'd resonate with what you're talking about. And um, uh, welcome to Carolina. I hope you uh, you settle in nicely into your new place and uh, and and get forward with. Uh, we'll see whether the next iteration of you uh, <laughs> what that looks like. So we'll be intrigued to see what that uh, turns out like. Yeah, thank you. I think the energies are just right, Andrew, for us to each do something aligned with our mission, but actually something really really new and fun to teach us all. So I'm excited about it. Beautiful. I wish you well, and thank you very much. Thank you. These podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers. I want you to think about what's been said, what's come up, and how you might apply that to your own situation. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast and, of course, share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment, and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle. <laughs>